the old pilot's plain tales. Rocket Man. I first met Matt about 25 years ago when I volunteered to help out at a local air training corps squadron, teaching the youngsters about aviation. Matt was on the staff and we became close friends. Little did I realise then the depth and breadth of his knowledge, particularly in the area of spacecraft. Matt's moving away from my area back to Northern Ireland where he came from, which will be a sad day for me. But before he left, I managed to get him to open up for a little while about his life as a spacecraft engineer. Matt, how did you get into satellites and spaceships and all that kind of stuff? Where did it all get kicked off? Well, it originally started when I was about 12 years of age and we were looking at things like Sputnik going over in the back garden. I've really got my parents to thank for that on the basis that uh, they noticed it as they noticed most thing about us growing kids. They looked after every one of us. There were four of us. And for one of my birthday presents, I got a book by Carl Jansky on communications. And that kind of triggered it off into getting into radio and so on. Um, I then started my apprenticeship at Pi Telecommunications, where I learned about televisions and radio in much greater depth. And when they closed down in Northern Ireland, I joined the Royal Air Force. And uh, that was the best thing I ever did. I went into the trade of ground radar and was first stationed up in the wilds of Scotland on a beacon up on top of a hill. So I needed something to do. So remembering what I'd done on my initial course in the Air Force, I started playing around with radios and built myself a little transmitter using stuff out of an existing radio. And the next thing was a knock on a door one day when I was off duty from the radio interference branch from uh, Glasgow (laughs) because I was transmitting on the light programme and blotting out Glasgow. (laughs) I mean, as far as I was concerned, me and my mates were just talking to each other from room to room, but it was getting as far as Glasgow, which is about 60 miles away. And I was given the option of going to court and suffering the pains of being fined or something similar or obtaining my radio amateur's license by visiting another radio amateur in a place called Tain Loan on the Mull of Kintyre which of course uh, I accepted and decided that was the better way to go so my world of communications expanded considerably having met this chap he was an amazing guy all of his equipment was valve based he had 15 inch racks everywhere six foot high in his room an electric fire element to burn off all the excess power on his transmission so that he didn't exceed the legal limits. It was it was wonderful. Cut a long story short, I got posted out to Neatishead to heavy radar, very long range radar. And one day reading through the paperwork that came in from the station, there was a volunteer post going for a programmer. Now I'd been teaching myself programming on the uh, radar system. And I applied for the post. So I went down to the unit on a Wednesday, had an interview on the Thursday, got posted on the Friday, and arrived back at that unit at Okanga on the Monday to start work. (laughs) That was quick. So that sort of got me into the industry of spacecraft. I arrived at the unit and got the shock of my life. There's a 60-foot, 200-ton dish. And, ah, it was heaven. I was in heaven. I spent the next... Nine years at that station, 
It took me three years to rewrite the ground station software, which is an entirely different story. We'll tell another time um, as to how that came about. But I had to learn a great deal very quickly about Britain's spacecraft, the Skynet 2 system, command and control, because I was going to rewrite the software to actually manage it. And it was there that I learned that a spacecraft, and there's a difference between a spacecraft and a satellite, very big difference. A spacecraft you have to manage, control, and fly, and keep in station. A satellite is something which drifts around the Earth in its own natural orbit. We put it up there. If you get it right, it flies right. If you get it wrong, it'll burn up. Um, whereas the spacecraft, our spacecraft, our military ones, were at geostationary orbit. So they're traveling at uh, 25,000 miles an hour around the Earth. And the interesting thing is that because they're traveling at the same speed as the Earth at the equator, they appear to be in the same position all the time, called geostationary. But they're going like the bats out of hell. Moved into that, and I got, I just literally got swallowed up. I suppose I was about 25 when we arrived here, and the rest of my life was involved in that sort of thing. So you, you did a lot in military work, and I know some of it's highly classified. It certainly was at the time. What about your move into the civil spacecraft industry? Yeah, it's very interesting, actually, because eventually the Ministry of Defence or the government decided that we didn't need to have service people looking after our ground stations. It could be run by civilians. And the services um, were, were diminishing in size considerably. Um, I ended up uh, at, a, at a company uh, called Inmarsat, International Maritime Satellite Organization, uh, under the auspices of Serco. That's where I got really into it. I mean, with the knowledge that I had, and I didn't realize it at the time, but I had hardware knowledge as an engineer and, of course, as a programmer. And apparently, though I didn't realize it at the time, there weren't very many of us around. So I got swallowed into Inmarsat, and I spent the next umpteen years thoroughly involved in the launching and the birth of Inmarsat. Inmarsat was a, a virgin company of 27 nations. Their international agreement was to provide communications for everyone on the earth, non-military, non-political, if you can ever get such a thing. But the idea was that it would be a set of geostationary satellites providing global communications for anybody who wanted to use it. In addition for that, of course, being maritime, they want to provide services for ships at sea. And as a result, of course, it was the beginnings of the end of the requirement for a ship's uh, officer to have a uh, Morse license because Inmarsat was up there all the time. It had channels specifically for ships at sea. It had channels specifically for emergency communications. And it ended up with the skipper, the chief engineer, and the mate having a dongle round his neck. If we pressed the button, it immediately activated a transmitter on board the ship, which sent a signal via the satellite through the emergency channel, giving the position of the uh, vessel, its name, its crew, the number of souls on board. Just amazing. And I mean, why do you need Morse code anymore for SOS? No, that's a good point. Uh, what were you specifically involved in? Well, I was just one of a team. And one of my jobs was to look after the spacecraft side. And 
the interesting thing is that it came about that uh, one of the 27 members decided that if we did not encrypt the command and telemetry uplink and downlink, they were not willing to pass their traffic through the spacecraft based on the fact that if you didn't encrypt it, anybody could put an uplink to it, take command of the spacecraft, move it, switch things on and off, do what you like. So but I received this letter from this, this particular country. I looked at it and thought, this is serious, took it up to the boss who looked at it and then expected me to explain it because he didn't understand it. And it was really quite fundamental. Either we uh, encrypt our uplink and downlink, or we lose 80% of the traffic of the spacecraft. And that meant millions of pounds per day. I mean, when you think 860-odd million pounds to build the spacecraft, and reckon to have a five-year life, it would cost you another 800-plus million pounds to launch it, put it on station, test it, make sure it's working, and then you start making money. And you make vast amounts of money per day if it works. And it's a huge risk getting it on station. Less and less of a risk the more and more we know about it. But uh, in those days, a big risk. Quite a few were lost. One of the military satellites which we launched at one stage, the rocket was going up into, into space and all of the dishes and satellite antennas were following the telemetry from the rocket as they followed the path and moved their tracking. And all of a sudden, there was this antenna, this dish, which was looking at the information from the spacecraft. It started to go back down towards the Earth again. And what had happened was the spacecraft had fallen off the top. Fallen off the top? Literally fallen off the top. Oh, off and the top of the rocket? Off the top of oh, the no. rocket. And it ended back on Mother Earth. <laughs> oh, dear. So that was £860 million down the tubes, uh, literally. And, I mean, it, it, it can happen. The last thing you want to do is have nuts and bolts and everything else holding onto that spacecraft because gravity itself and the force of the rocket will keep it on there. It's getting rid of it when you get up into orbit. Every time you put a nut or a bolt somewhere to hold something, you've got something that has a risk of going wrong. And when you look at the number of parts, you start to think, how much can go wrong? It's a miracle that some of these things actually launched. But technology and our learning and our ability to achieve things improved immensely. I would say the Second World War was responsible for a huge amount of learning. I've heard it said many times that the war is a war is a mother of invention. And uh, it is, but it's sad to say. Indeed, indeed. Now, yeah. you were in the industry in the, well, initially in the 70s, would that be fair to say? I started off, I suppose, the late 60s into, into the spacecraft, into, in, into communications in the late 60s, into the 70s. Uh, late 70s, I left formal service and started at Inmarsat, and uh, I was there a long time. The interesting thing about that is that as we learnt more and we achieved more, as part of the team, we designed the next series of, of Inmarsat spacecraft because our first series, we borrowed them from or hired them from Marex. We used the Marex bird. The next ones, we designed and built ourselves. And, of course, as we learned more about space, the smart guys in the back room realized that if you put a piece of metal at the end of the solar panel, one side shiny, the other side black, you could actually affect using the solar wind, which is charged particles, 
to actually fly the spacecraft. You could fly it in this charged particle wind. So you could save on fuel, because every spacecraft, quote the word spacecraft as against satellite, had thrusters on board, carried hydrazine fuel to run those thrusters, and you were required by international or global agreement to keep your spacecraft in a one-kilometer box. And we are literally talking about an XYZ box. You've got to fly it in that box if it's geostationary because next to you is another box belonging to somebody else. You hit their spacecraft, you've got to buy them a new one. <laughs> and you already know the cost of that. <laughs> I mean, as an example, in Marsat's first launch, the company had to invest the whole cost of the spacecraft into the insurance company. So it basically wasn't insurance at all. It was saying, we'll lodge this money with the insurance company. If it goes wrong, the insurance will give us the money back. We'll build another one. However, if your flight is successful, the insurance company say, well, you've got another three to launch. They're the same spacecraft. The money that we hold will cover you for all three. So if you lose one of them, two of them, three of them, we'll pay you for them and you can build new ones. So it's an investment game. Um, Inmarsat's launch went off like uh, it was 100%. It arrived on station when it should do. It went through its testing when it should do. And it came online two days early and started making money. So the insurance companies immediately turned around and said, well, you've got another three to launch. We've, if something goes wrong, we'll cover you. Nothing did, of course. They all went launched successfully. So my position in Inmarsat was as uh, initially as a project engineer and then as a project manager. I project managed the up and down link security or, or encryption of the spacecraft, which meant I had a fair bit of traveling to do. One of the aspects of, of spacecraft and communications is that if you're an engineer in this world, there is no such thing as a clock. A spacecraft is like a radio-controlled model. What do you do if you can't control it? Well, you stand there with your controller and you work away at it until you fix it or until you decide you can't fix it. But you're talking about £860 million worth of spacecraft and heaven only knows how many million pounds worth of daily money. So if it has a hiccup, you work the clock round until you fix it. The longest I've worked is 17 days with a team of guys when something went wrong. And we just sat at it for 24 hours a day, grabbing a snooze while we could, eating and drinking masses of coffee, smoking loads of cigarettes, because we did in those days, and fighting the problem. And when you found the solution, you all went to bed. And slept for two days. <laughs> but you had to find the solution. You had to fix it. You either had to fix it or find a way around it. And, of course, that ended up with me, where I was involved in the encryption side. Even today, I don't talk a lot about it. So encrypting, uplink and downlink encryptions, really important, absolutely vital, because you don't want some hacker hacking into the spacecraft and turning everything off or turning everything on or switching channels and so on. If you look at all the way back to Telstar, Telstar had one single video channel and a number of telephone channels. Very, very clever. When you look at the likes of Inmarsat spacecraft that are flying now, they have hundreds of thousands of continuous simultaneous telephone channels going on all the time. And 
a considerable number of video channels, plus t telecommand channels, picture channels. I mean, it, it's masses. You've just got to believe it. If you really want to understand how that works, you've got to get into things called band spread techniques. And that's just something that uh, way technical. I don't want to bore you with that right now. It's just way too much. But, no, but you have mentioned Telstar. Now, that was, I believe, uh, Telstar 1, the very first telecommunications satellite that would be capable of passing uh, television signals. And as a kid, I would have been about eight, I guess, when it first flew. Um, I remember everyone was terribly excited because we were able to get live TV broadcasts from the United States into Europe and vice versa. What was the technology like with Telstar? Well, it's actually amazing. I mean, you, you, you think about it. If you get into this seriously and you start to realise... From my point of view, I turn around and I look at it now and I looked at the miracles of, of, of space technology in those days. Um, it was transistorized. Now, that sounds, oh, that's wonderful, it's all transistors. It wasn't all transistors. There was a valve on board that spacecraft, a travelling wave tube valve. Um, it is, it's got heaters, it's got everything else, but it, it's, it's cavity-operated up into the thousands of megacycles. To get into that, you really need to do a bit of reading. I don't want to get into too much theory, but if you start looking at the likes of the transistors, today we talk about something, the fact that, that we have two spacecraft that have been sent out of the Earth's atmosphere. Uh, they are of transistor technology. They're still going and we're still receiving signals. It is amazing when you think about it. Matt is, of course, talking about the remarkable Voyager series of spacecraft, which are still continuing their journey through interstellar space. We'll hear more from Matt on the next Plain Tale when we conclude his interview. Plain Tales is a featured segment of the Airline Pilot Guy show. You can find out all about that at airlinepilotguy.com. Plain Tales is also a standalone podcast, and if you're listening to this, you'll probably already know that I'd really appreciate it if you would leave us a review, perhaps on Apple Podcasts or your podcatcher of choice. Many thanks for listening.